The Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast is proudly supported by Red Energy, powered by Snowy Hydro, a leader in renewable energy. Switch to Aussie-owned Red Energy today, Prince Wine Store, bringing Melburnians the greatest wine in the world, and Cobram Estate, Australia's most awarded extra virgin olive oil, grown, harvested and first cold-pressed in northern Victoria. Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Corey Perkin. And welcome everybody to episode 291 of Don't Shoot the Messenger. I'm Caroline Wilson. I'm here with my good friend and Writers Festival director, Corrie Perkin. Good to see you, Corrie. Hey, Caro. Nice to see you. Nice to be back in the studio. It is. And uh, we've got plenty to talk about today. We've been to see another cracker British film. You have a book. You've been ploughing through those books, Corrie, and we're going to reap the benefits of those one of these days <laughs> once once a certain award is announced. Um, we've, I have discovered a great new dish just because of something I had in the freezer, so I'm going to share that with you. Very, very simple. And we've got some serious stuff to talk about too. I'm grumpy and you've got an amazing fact. Corrie, um, Wade Kingsley has been in touch just to get rid of some... Oh, look, first of all, thank you, Red Energy, our wonderful sponsors, 100% Australian electricity and gas, powered by Snowy Hydro, a leader in renewable energy, switched to Aussie-owned Red Energy today. Paid my bill yesterday, Corrie, had a lot of clericals to do, and that was one of them. Our friend Wade Kingsley, who's been in touch on a number of matters over the journey, has emailed you re-grandparenting. Yeah, I saw Wade at yoga. In fact, he says, hi, Cory and Caro. Good to see you at yoga, Cory. Thanks, Wade. Uh, Wade's been listening for years. He's he been in like, a yoga class. Yeah, he, well, yeah, well, what do you mean hour? <laughs> and how, how often are you there? Once or twice <laughs> a week. I was there this week twice and I didn't see you, Corrie. Um, Saturday. Oh, I've been sick, Caroline. Um, <laughs> Saturday morning, I think I usually see Wade. But Wade's been listening and his wife, Suze, have been listening to the uh, podcast virtually from day one. And he says, I agree with the importance of grandparent rituals. My two younger sisters and I were picked up by my grandmother on a Friday night and went to whatever takeaway we wanted. If I wanted McDonald's and one sister wanted KFC and the other Hungry Jacks, she'd drive to all three. I still remember doing it, and I do the same now with my kids. Wade also, this is interesting, Caro, a letter to the editor on last week's episode, Corey referred to Matthew Perry's character as Chandler, rather than the American pronunciation of Chandler. What's the etiquette here? I feel like with names of people, real or fictional, it's usually said in the way it's pronounced by them, rather than the way we pronounce it. Is that right? Asks Wade. Very good question. Pedantic Wade. <laughs> no, I, I did read Wade some grandparenting email about the different takeaways. I thought that was really cute. And he probably makes a point, but I think we pronounce it the way we pronounce Oh, I don't know. Yeah, I, it's I can't difficult. slip into American speak and say Chandler. I just can't do that. No, it, it's a bit difficult. A couple of other things, Corey. Uh, Red Energy event is has been postponed to early next year. Um, variety of reasons. We've got lots of exciting details to come about our three hundredth podcast, which is going to be held in the first few months of next year. More of that very very soon. We know there's been um, a few issues with our sound quality in recent weeks. We reckon we've fixed it, Corrie. And unlike Optus. We're straight to it. We're up front and centre and we understand there's been an issue and we're pretty sure we've fl- fixed it. Now, Lisa wants to know details of the online book club. Online book club is the Corrie is Reading book club, Lisa. So I will, if you want to send me uh, a message via Corrie is Reading on Instagram, I will get back to you about the details of our online book club We've been running these through the, originally through the bookshop during Zoom and then after I lost the bookshop, uh, we have about four groups. We are probably going to merge them into one. Carol, we have people in Moree. We have people in Alice Springs. We have people in Sydney who join this book club. So I think Lisa might have said that she was in Queensland. I'd uh, love to have you on board, Lisa, but just contact me through that way. And can I just read you – remember I told you in my um, – 
uh, amazing fact the other day about pickleball, Caro. Yes. And you had no idea. Never heard of it. This is from Prefect on our Instagram account, which is Don't Shoot Pod. My 78-year-old mum recently moved into a gated community. Pickleball, replete with some very jaunty outfits, is de rigueur. However, it is traditionally played with a plastic ball. There have been many noise complaints. And um, Prefect adds, Brené Brown also owns a team. Brené Brown, who writes all of those extraordinary books, those self-help books. She's a multi, multi-gazillionaire, an American... Um, have you never... You, you looked at me curiously then. Have you never heard of Brené Brown? Yes, but I'm... No, I'm looking at you curiously to <laughs> Why think would I, she own a pickleball team? I just find the whole thing extraordinary, that I had never heard of and it. And you call yourself a sports writer. I know. Well, I've clearly... <laughs> I've, I've not. I used to diversify. I've clearly um, honed in on one particular sport in recent years. Corrie, I'm going to get cut straight to the chase here. Um, we're in the middle of the most horrific international situation, and that is war in the Middle East. War, specifically in Gaza. I was watching again. Um, we're sitting here on a Tuesday morning to time code this conversation. I watched um, last night on the ABC. Oh, Four Corners. No, no, the following Four Corners, following Media Watch, hosted by Patricia Carvelis. Oh, Q&A. Carvelis. Q&A. Q&A. Thank you. Um, it, it, You're it, good. I went to bed early because we had an early podcast recording. Well, it yet again, you know, it, it just shows how even um, the redoutable PK struggled at times, and she did a brilliant job in just trying to... Um, I suppose, not, not so much cur- curtail, but just have a disciplined conversation about this with it, without allowing either side to ream off into the other. Look, to cut to the chase, how do you plan on dealing with, and, and you dealt with the voice to a, to a great degree in the 2023 Surrender Writers Festival, how do you plan to look at the Middle East or is it just, just going to be too difficult? Have you started to think about that? Oh, thinking about it all the time. So the the festival is six months away and we know that these sorts of uh, geopolitical stories... Actually, are, five uh, months. Time's ticking on. Oh, gosh, don't say that to me. <laughs> That's just horrendous. Um, but we know we know that these situations are, are, are moving feast, Caro, and it's really hard to predict what, what, what things are going to look like in April. Uh, but I am making decisions now about which authors and which speakers, academics, journalists should be appearing at the festival. And this is constantly in the foremost of my mind because, of course, the festival is interested in events that are happening and issues that are at the forefront of our discussions at the moment. My feeling is about this, that the motto, the, the motto or the mantra of this festival from the very minute from the get-go that it was first it came into my head was that we have to create uh, safe and mutually respectful places in which to have important conversations. And if a speaker, uh, I will not tolerate a speaker being um, ridiculed or attacked uh, verbally or physically, being made to feel incredibly um, awkward or diminished, unsafe. Uh and what we're seeing happen in Melbourne, in our own streets in Caulfield, but all over Melbourne, you and I have heard anecdotally from friends that there have been lots of anti-Semitic, anti-Palestinian, anti-Muslim, um, just fierce attacks all around Melbourne. And the Writers' Festival would not be immune if we put um, if we put up if we put together a discussion that might be seen as being heightened. Um, you know, creating heightened anxiety and being quite difficult and quite provocative. So, remember uh, the um, Adelaide Writers Festival earlier this year with Louise and Louise Adler, of course, decided to bring in an incredibly controversial topic, which was the war in Ukraine, and in fact, a couple of Russian speakers who. Well, well, I, I remember talking to Peter Melanowskis, the South Australian Premier, about this because he ended up having to step in. And, you know, some people were horrified at the thought. Well, she also, she also lost support from a number of um, high-profile Jewish supporters. Of course. Because she brought in um, the two Palestinian authors. Yep. And I, 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 look, I, I admire that courage. That's not what our festival is about. At the Adelaide Writers' Festival and the Surrender Writers' Festival are two very different beasts. And it's not that we're trying to be safe and cosy and white bread sandwich about this. On the contrary, 
um, all topics are up for discussion, but I just think it's how we handle it and what we do. And I can't make any decisions about that yet until I know how things are in April 2024. There's been some brilliant writing and some very good journalism. There's also been a lot of misinformation over the last few weeks, over the last month. I mean, it it is. Um, it began, I, I suppose, the theme of the first week after the Hamas terrorist attack, which was one of the more horrific things I've seen in many, many years. Um, it, it seemed like every Palestinian or Muslim leader was absolutely forced to completely, completely reject and completely step away from anything Hamas did. And some were sort of unwilling to do that. It took a lot of questioning. It it seemed to be quite difficult. But then I feel in the last couple of weeks, the tone has changed. And obviously, Jewish friends are horrified and very frightened and deeply, deeply disturbed about the what they see as a growth of anti-Semitism around the world. And then on the other side, you're sort of getting a a feeling from some world leaders and even from our own foreign minister that what's going on in Gaza has to stop. Well, This Israeli counterattack has to stop. It's how we digest the news, isn't it? That's our only entree point, unless people have family, and they do, uh, in, in Israel or in Gaza. You and I don't. So our entree point to this story is through the news that we get. And I have been increasingly concerned about the news coverage that we're receiving. So at the moment, we know, I mean, as you said, the the uh, the, um, the attacks in early October on the kibbutz and the music festival, um, the shock and the horror that the world witnessed, uh, thanks, I might say, to citizen journalism, Cara, thanks to people with iPhones who were running for their lives, but brave enough or uh, perspicacious enough to kind of have their iPhone on to be recording this extraordinary event, extraordinary massacre, let's call it what it was. And But now we know, according to the United Nations and the Ministry of Health in Gaza, that the death toll there is around 9,000. Uh, and that, I think that figure is actually a few days old. So I keep wondering about what is my news diet? Who is giving me the facts? And I'm a little bit concerned. I think it's a slightly different news environment to what it was maybe when you and I, I'll never forget when you and I were working at the Sunday Age and CNN had just come into our world in the late 80s. And we had a te- Gulf War. That's yeah. right. And we had a television screen, screen up and all of a sudden the Gulf War was on and the invasion of Kuwait. And our newsroom was glued to that television set. Do you remember? We It was on all day, all night. And it was... and. And because of CNN, largely, we were all kind of introduced to war. And I think things are a little different now. I think people, because of algorithms and because of uh, clickbait and so on, suddenly our news diet is becoming what we want to see, even if we don't intend it to. And I think we have to be very uh, vigilant to not only look at the Herald Sun and maybe Channel 7 or The Age or The Guardian or whatever it is that wherever our kind of allegiances might lie, but to actually look at, um, go to news sites like Al Jazeera, um, to, to, have a, to have a look at the other side. How are the other, how's the other side reporting it? For me, the BBC has the BBC um, both um, on the telly and also on my newsfeed uh, is uh, for me is is an excellent source. But then again, we have to remember that there are there's a very big pro Jewish um, body behind the British media. And no one wants to, no no news boss wants to offend the bankers, the people who, who fund your organisation. So again, I mean, the BBC has stuck to its long-term policy of not using the term terrorism, terrorists. They use the term militants. Um, but, but in this particular example with what is happening, particularly the Hamas attackers, uh, do we call them terrorists? I would have thought we would call them terrorists, but the BBC has a policy of not. So, you, And it's other things too. Journalists, um, define, are they defining the differences between terrorists and militants or war and conflict or invasion and incursion or governing power, Hamas, or terrorist organisation, Hamas? And this is the kind of argument that just goes on and on and, and it completely bewilders people. So people do tend to stick to their own news. What about you? How are you digesting it? Well, um, I'm, look, I'm mainly watching the ABC, I've got to be honest. and I think Which that, has come um, in for a bit of a battering on this topic as well. Yeah, I don't really understand why. I think John Lyons has done a really good job. 
Well, as I understand it, it came more internally. They had a staff meeting because there are Palestinian and Jewish staff members in the newsroom who were concerned that one side or the other was receiving um, was receiving greater or lesser coverage or, or a sway or a bias or, a, uh, you know, three three Jewish commentators versus one Palestinian commentator. So the newsroom, I mean, to, to their credit, ABC management actually said, okay, well, look, and maybe they've learned something since the Stan Grant episode earlier this year, but they said, let's all, let's all come together and let's have a big discussion about this. And I gather they had a very powerful, um, no-holds-barred, everybody being quite open about how they felt that they had a newsroom kind of conference, if you like. And, um, and Justin Stevens, who's the ABC news director talked about, um, controversial views can be ventilated, but we must challenge and question them. You know, if, if, if one side or the other says this or that, we must remain, um, true to, to the ethics of journalism and we must question the powers of authority, what people are saying. I think that, um, and, and to circle back to where we started, we were sitting around the other day just saying it would be great because it's such a, it's, it's a topic without answer and without solution. And so many, you know, world leaders have tried to, st- to step in and find peace in the Middle East. No one has ever succeeded. And it is just a, you, you can blame various points of history. You can blame what happened post-World War II in Britain. There were so many different theories about this. And someone said, oh, I'd love to just hear a history going all the way back, mm. all the way back, you know, virtually to the Crusades to find out but or, or further. But I think that's just so difficult. I think this is one topic that it is so hard to find and, and maybe there will never be a middle ground. But to circle back to the start of the conversation about the arts world and you've talked about what's happening in our own country – there was an article in The Age on Saturday that we both read about how it's, it's divided the arts community here too, yeah. which is quite extraordinary in two major organisations. Oh, totally. Because people, Major arts organisations. Yeah, I mean, people have enormous, uh, regardless of anybody's background. They, I mean, we know you and I know Jewish people who are outraged and horrified by what's happening at Gaza. Um, you know, like there, there are just, there are so many, as you said, this is so nuanced and it's just so individual and everybody has the right to express themselves. But what is happening is that some arts boards and some funders of arts organisations are saying, I don't like that you're making this, you know, this particular statement. It's pro-Palestinian. Well, hasn't a particular board member stepped away from, was it one yes. of the film festivals? Or? Yeah, it, I think it was at ACCA. Open letters can really create problems. Yeah, one, one of the board members at ACCA, the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art, uh, who is a well-known lawyer, um, actually came out, you know, saying something in support of or, or anti-Israel's invasion of Gaza and and in support of the Palestinian cause and um, and has had to resign because of a backlash. So, which I think was actually her choice to do that. But it, but it's it's. Very complicated, this because you sp- you spoke about seeing Golda last week. Yeah, it was it. It must have been fascinating to watch that film in the context of what's happening now. Oh, and and also when you and I saw uh, the one with Anthony Hopkins, One, one Life. Life, you know, yeah. and also the book I'm going to be talking about today. So Golda is based on uh, the life of Golda Meir, but it takes one slice of her life, which is the 1973 Yom Kippur War which is when um, the Arab states formed a coalition and in from the 6th to the 25th of October, they invaded Israel. And um, and in the end, Henry Kissinger steps in and there is a ceasefire. But um, Golda Meir, of course, was held to account and she was the subject of an inquiry. Had she moved, uh, was she too slow in moving? Was she too slow in listening to the intelligence because hundreds of Israeli soldiers were killed? So it's a really great story. Helen Mirren plays an incredible role. It's a very intense movie. There's a lot of cigarette smoking in the 1970s. Golda was a was an habitual had a fag in her mouth the whole time. But it's it's a really interesting film, Caro, to watch in this context because this is about a state that was um, was created as a world response to the Holocaust. And this is a state that is fiercely held, you know, with pride, with love, with uh, enormous intent. And Golda Meir is going to do everything she can to keep the invaders out. And it's quite an interesting 
sort of story to have running. And there's a lot of art. There are a lot. There's a lot of art at the moment that's making us all think about this particular issue. At a time when there's been another attack, a horrific terrorist attack that no one saw coming. Oh, it's just unbelievable, Cara. But, but, you know, I just want to say, just before we finish on this topic and going back to journalists, I just want to remind people of the extraordinary courage that we're seeing at the moment. Um, I don't know whether you saw the feed, the CNN uh, Palestinian reporter who, who's, who lost his wife, son, uh, daughter and grandchild in a bombing attack when he was on air. And he went to the morgue to identify them with the camera crew. And the next day he was back in the chair reporting. So this is this is real life drama because you and I have kind of grown up with an idea that journalists somehow, there's a bit of like a white flag above us. You know, the enemy know that the journalists are there. Sometimes it can work well to have journalists embedded with you and have them reporting on your cause as well as the other cause. Something like um, 30, 26 or 30 journalists have been killed in the, in the last month. So I, I just hats off to those who are particularly those in Gaza, um, who are you know who are who are trying to bring us the truth and trying to bring us the story. Have you ever had so many people say you should read this and sending you things? It's so quite true. Yeah, from both sides. Yeah. Well, look, um, terrible, terrible time and a terrible topic we're discussing. And it's, we will in no way try and make sense of it except to try and look at the way it's been covered, which I find just intriguing. And on that note, Corrie, it's time to welcome in Miles Thompson and have a drink. Search printwinestore.com.au, bringing Melburnians the greatest wine in the world. So yes, welcome to the cocktail cabinet brought to us by brought to us by Prince Wine Store and Miles Thompson. As I said, now Miles, we mentioned last week at the end of our chat that you're often recommending wines and other spirits and drinks and beers, etc., that people come in and get off the back of our podcast, and they're all gone. So we decided <laughs> we, we well, are that powerful. We decided. Well, the the power I think is all Miles's. Power of, print, the, power of the pod. Prince power of the prince. Store. Um, power of the pod. So we thought you, you've got a top five for us, Miles, which I am really looking forward to. It. There is a reason why these products are so good, and you are going to tell us. Yeah, it's it really is incredible how how often stuff sells out, and the staff are always like, Miles, we sold out of this thing again. Why do you keep suggesting it? And I was like, Well, you know, <laughs> it's good. It's great. <laughs> It's it's such a it's really great that that happens too. I'd rather stuff be selling out than than not. So it's very exciting that that happens in the first place. A little birdie tells me we're going to kick off with a rosé. Yeah, well, look, kick off with number one. This was this. I think we only talked about it two weeks ago, um, and it's not even exactly rosé weather yet. But um, it has been super popular. Jules rosé, so Mediterranean rosé. They make the Provence rosé. This is not everything. All, not all the fruit is from Provence, so they have to call it Mediterranean rosé. But very Provence in style. That salmon pink, very sort of textural. That strawberries and kind of sea breeze thing going on. It's such a fantastic wine and twenty dollars. I mean, it's an absolute bargain. Miles, that wasn't the one that you gave me the other day as a gift with the beautiful bottle. No, so that was the that was the two we talked about. The other yes. one um, was the Chateau de Rue, which is a bit more premium. That's about forty dollars. Yeah, that 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 was really delicious, Carol. I You've could almost it? become a rosé. Yes, I knocked the I top we off were, it. I thought you were going to pour oh, me good. a glass, Corey. <laughs> must have been <laughs> must have been washing my hair that day. Some confused messaging. Your, there, the uh, invitation must have got stuck in your spam somewhere, Caro. Okay, the Jules Rosé, constant bestseller. Let's get down there and buy some. What else have you got for us, Miles? So good. So I'll go rosé. I'll go to white. Gilbert Blanc. This is one I think I talked about maybe a month or two ago um, as part of one of the the packs maybe. Um, it's a blend from um, orange and um, Canberra and it's a Riesling, Pinot Greek, a Wurtztrum and a blend. And, you know, Potties probably know I really like these blends a lot and it was super popular and it's great because it's got lovely sort of pretty floral, lifted aromatics, citrus and kind of pear fruit, lovely sort of mid-weight style white that's got a little bit of sort of, you know, kind of sweet, like lovely sort of lifted citrusy kind of things going on and some nice sort of texture and weight. It's not too big. It's not too light. It's really fantastic. Just quaffer and $26. So super, super uh, great value too. Gilbert Blanc sounds wonderful. And then we yeah. have? 
So Quercibella Mongrana, this was, I think, I can't remember when we talked about this earlier in the year, probably closer to winter. This is a Tuscan blend of Sangiovese and then Cabernet and Merlot, and it's the quintessential Tuscan wine in sort of my mind, that kind of leather and and dark cherry and that kind of pepper spice and that beautiful sort of lushness that you get from Merlot blended in with Sangiovese and that lovely crunchy sort of tannins that make it so perfect for for food, you know, again, kind of medium to sort of full-bodied, great, you know, perfect barbecue wine. It is an absolute stunner. Love this wine. Leather. I love that. Leather in yeah. a wine. That's a Quercia Mongrana. And so we've got the so far the Jules Rosé, the Gilbert Blanc, the Quercia Mongrana, and you've got a couple more. Yeah. So Not wines. Not wines, yeah. I thought I thought it'd be good to talk about, and these have been super popular as well, and surprisingly so to some degree. I think the first one is the Stilla de Silos Golfo Vermut Negra. This is, um, I know you like these sort of styles of wines. I do. Uh, yeah, um, I see the word Vermut, and I think I'm back in Barcelona or Madrid. Absolutely. <laughs> You're so but easily you... pleased. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it is. I think that's absolutely right, Caro. There are certain drinks that you can have. Uh, like the the old Negroni that um, take you straight back to mm, yes Sicily twenty twenty three or or COVID lockdown. <laughs> so um, where is this vermouth from? So it's um, so it's based out of the sort of northern part of Spain. It's by a producer called Silar de Silos, and he put actually one of his sort of top wines in it. So he uses really fantastic wine. Got some barrel aging, all that lovely kind of you know licorice herbs and spit and and uh, there's really kind of like spicy kind of clove things going on, and the vermouths have this lovely sort of nutty sort of element to them as well, um, more like you know reminiscent of the sherries of Spain. So um, you know beautifully sweet but not too sweet, kind of a richer style vermouth or vermouth, um, but really fantastic. You know perfect. You know kind of a couple of couple of uh, 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 so 60 mils of this and maybe a dash of soda and a little little wedge of orange while it's hot will be absolutely perfect. Oh, it sounds wonderful. The Golfo Vermut. And finally, do I spy a beer on your list? Yeah, absolutely. Weinstefana Pilsner, um, one of the oldest, I think the oldest brewery in Germany. Um, and just a classic pills. And again, I was kind of thinking summer, and this was super popular. I was surprised how many people came in asking for this after talking about it. Um, but it really is one of the world's kind of, you know, great, great beer producers. Um, and this is a classic pills of that dry, very lightly hopped, really fresh sort of style. Um, yeah, the perfect summer drop, absolutely. So a lot of this stuff perfect for summer too, so... So if I trotted down to Prince Wine Store today, would any of these products be available or are they all sold out? <laughs> I think everything is available. Great. Uh, I had a quick look and it looks like it was all there. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to make sure that uh, I have them all ordered and ready to go so they're in the store for anyone who comes in. <laughs> Sounds like a perfect Christmas gift pack, you're a good, you're a good retailer. Talk up the product that you actually have lots of. Well done. Miles, Miles, that was a fantastic segment. Um, it was a cocktail cabinet brought to us, as I told you, by Prince Wine Store. And Miles Thompson, if you want to buy any of those wines and get the special listener discount, you can do so online, princewinestore.com.au, and put in the promo code MEWS, that's short for Messenger, for your 10% discount. Thank you, Miles. Uh, my pleasure. Powered by Snowy Hydro, a leader in renewable energy. Switch to Aussie-owned red energy today. BSF. Book screen food. Corrie, you're going to kick us off today with a book, and it's called A Brilliant Life. I'm intrigued. It's A Brilliant Life, my mother's inspiring story of surviving the Holocaust by Melbourne journalist Rachelle Unreich, who is a dear friend of mine, she is a former, oh, really prolific reader. She was in that bookshop of mine, I reckon, every second week, Rochelle, a great supporter of the bookshop. And she's a terrific writer. Many age readers would remember or know her uh, her byline. And Rochelle's mother died in 2017, Mira, at the age of 89. And just before she died, Mira, who was a Holocaust survivor, 
who was born in Czechoslovakia and spent a fair bit of the time of the um, of World War II in concentration camps, Mira opened up to her daughter, the chronicler of the family, the journalist of the family, and told her story. And the most remarkable thing about this book, there are many remarkable things about this beautiful book. One of them is that Rochelle knew so few of the stories, which I think is probably not uncommon amongst Jewish families where the parents, or indeed in the old days, the grandparents were Holocaust survivors. Nothing was ever much said. But it's also the way that Rochelle has reflected upon her own life and considered her mother in a mother's story in a different light. For example, Rochelle, it's peppered with her uh, um, her memory of her own childhood, but also woven in beautifully with Mira's story. And at one stage, Rochelle is referring to when she was, I think, 11 or 12, and she had a, her first boyfriend. She went to a party and one of the boys contacted her afterwards and said, oh, will you go around with me? Remember going around? <laughs> yes, I do. Will you go around <laughs> with me? And so they have, there's a bit of a kiss action happening. There's a well, kiss Well, to do it that often, actually. Probably you were more than me, but it did pop up a I couple of I was always going around. I was so, going around so much, I was dizzy. But... Um, <laughs> But Mira, uh, I can't exactly recall, Mira discovers that there was a kiss or finds the kids or maybe Rochelle tells her, I can't remember. But um, it's one experience that Mira never had because, of course, she was 10 when uh, when Czechoslovakia was invaded by the um, Third Reich and she never had young love. She, she spent most of her teenage years in concentration camps or hiding from the Nazis. So this was an alien experience to actually understand and try and empathise with what her daughter was going through. The book is filled with those sorts of memories. So just a very brief sort of rundown on Mira's amazing story. Mira was born in 1927 in Czechoslovakia. As I said, she was the youngest of five children, Jewish shopkeeper, parents, Dolphy and Genya, uh, Blumenstock, and her very peaceful and wonderful childhood with brothers and sisters, um, and a a close-knit Jewish community, came to a crashing halt in September 1940 when she was 13. Jews were banned from owning businesses or attending schools. Private property was confiscated. And in 1942, the roundups of the Jews began. Dolphy, the father, was an incredible hero in many ways and organised strategically the escape of his children. Um... And in fact, Mira was sent away uh, under false papers, um, so she was um, seen as not Jewish, and she rented a room as a young girl and worked. But in 1944, the family met the fate of so many other Jews, and they were discovered, and Mira actually and her mother were actually there when her father was shot dead by uh, the Nazis, who were going house to house with the Roundup. Mira and her mother were sent to a camp. Um, they were moved again and again and again. And in the end, uh, Mira, at the end of the war, her mother, is, her mother dies, her, her brother has been killed, um, her sister. It's just absolutely appalling what happens to that family, as all families at that time. And Mira ends up in Ravensbrook at the uh, liberation of the camps. And that part of the story is also really interesting, Cara. We forget what happened when either the Russian or the American forces came to whatever camp, opened up the doors, and the prisoners of these camps were let free. And that in itself is an incredible story, as is Mira's journey to how she ended up in Melbourne. Now, Rochelle and her... At the time when Mira is diagnosed with cancer, Rochelle resolves to herself and with the encouragement of her siblings to really press hard with their mother to get her to talk about these years because she hasn't talked about them. And I think this is what you would call the interview of one's lifetime. It's the sort of, in the hands of a a terrific journalist with this terrific story, this story comes to life. But it's also a story of a mother's mother and daughter love. It's the story of Mira's family and the father who protected them and did everything he could to protect them. It's the story of assimilation, moving to a new country, a new culture, how to assimilate, hold on to your own Jewish um, heritage, which is problematic and difficult at times to do. 
and and Rochelle, who's probably maybe five years younger than you and I at her age in her late fifties coming to terms with all of this, losing her parent and herself moving forward with her own family story. It is a fabulous book. Now, it's published by Hachette, and Hachette contacted me months ago about this book. They said, we've got a cracker of a memoir coming through at the end of the year. Rochelle Arnrich is coming, of course, to the Sorrento Writers' Festival, but just in case bodies are interested, Wednesday the 22nd, which is next week at the South Yarra Library, I'm interviewing Rochelle I think there are about 15 tickets left for this event. It's a sellout, almost a sellout, which is great because I think particularly at this time, Caro, particularly all the stuff that we've been talking about on this podcast, this is a very good time to delve into this most interesting family history. So that's A Brilliant Life by Rochelle Unreich. And moving on to film, thank you very much for that. We both went and saw The Lesson starring Richard E. Grant and Julie Delpy as part of the British Film Festival. This film... It was one of those ones where we saw the shorts and thought, this looks absolutely brilliant. It it, it came across as a, as a bit of a sort of campy, noir sort of thriller set in the English countryside and involving um, a young aspiring writer who moves in with his idol, played by Richard E. Grant, a celebrated author, and finds himself, I suppose, suppose ensnared in a family full of secrets and carrying in their hearts a, a terrible, terrible tragedy. Now, I thought the film was a bit slow to begin with. That would be my one criticism, a bit slower than I thought it was going to be. But it, it's a great story. Well, you're right about the shorts. <laughs> you and I did think, oh, this looks rollicking good fun. <laughs> I think maybe it was, do you think it was the music from the shorts? So you and I, when we went to the British Film Festival the week before, we saw the shorts to this film and thought, yes, that's one we must go and see. And in fact, there was a bit of a pile on. There were quite a few of the gang all turned up. It was lovely to see everybody. We all turned on up. A Monday we, all, night. we all found ourselves at Cinema Coma. It was fantastic. But, but it was just so, it was so intense, wasn't it? And it was deeply disturbing and it was not a black comedy. There were very few laughing bits at all. I thought, that, so the main character, Liam, who's the young aspiring novelist, is played by Daryl McCormack, who we all remember so well. From, from Leo Grande. Yes. Yep. Um, he is just such a fine, fine actor. And um, and he is, um, he's, he's written his thesis on the revered author J.M. Sinclair, who's played by Richard E. Grant, I think brilliantly played by Richard E. Grant. He is. And, and he is hired by the family to be the tutor to the younger son, who is trying to get into Oxford into an English literature course. So he comes for the Bertie, summer. played by Stephen Macmillan, who's a star on the rise, I reckon. Star on the yep. rise. Yep. But interestingly, and you didn't get this, it's so interesting, Julie Delpy, who uh, is the wife of Richard E. Grant, who's a, a very talented art curator, you couldn't remember where you'd seen her face. And at the end of the film, I said, do you remember all those Ethan Hawke French yeah, movies? Round Midnight, yeah. After Midnight. I three, did. There were three of them? Yeah, it was a trilogy. They were made like 10 years apart about yeah, a couple right. who first meet on a train. They're it, great films, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah. The last one, I think, is set in Spain and is not quite so. Anyway, they're all they're all great films. But it, all the act, it's a six-parter. There's only two, one very, very small part of an interviewer, which happens in the prologue and the ep- epilogue, and it was sort of a manservant who you don't know whose side he's on in this mystery. The one thing you know from a very, very early in the film is that um, the author, Richard E. Grant, had two sons, one of whom drowned in the family lake on the property, this beautiful, beautiful um, garden set somewhere in England. And you find out pretty quickly that, he died at his own hand. He, he killed himself. And there are some terrible sort of passing comments. He refers to, Richard E. Grant refers to his wife, Julie, played by Julie Delby, as the absent mother. Ah, oh, the absent mother. And you find out that's because she was away at the Venice Biennale when the son drowned. But then you start to find out it's a literary thriller too, isn't it? It's a mystery within a mystery about this book that it the is. author is working on. Don't give anything away. But look, a, a slow-moving start. The first fifteen minutes could have been five minutes. I'm sorry, but it just took too I, long. Well, to you set you up. all you all agreed about that. I'm not so sure because I thought the setup was really quite interesting. The arrival of Liam. So why was the butler standing by the door waiting for him to arrive? You know, I think that was the first giveaway that something was not quite as it should be. Beautiful scenes of staring through the glasses. Liam arrives. Um, the, the, the whole kind of 
introduction to the house and the artworks and what they all meant gave us such insight into the mother's character as she takes Liam on a tour of the house. How about the cottage in the garden, where, which is his studio, where he's, he's living, his digs while he's helping the son through the um, pre-exam Studying, unbelievable, unbelievable. Look, it's, this house—it's a—it's a fascinating little film, and once you realise what's really going on, and um, yeah, no, look, it, there are some red herrings, but in the end, it's pretty clear what's happened, and it's pretty clear why Daryl McCormick, the who who comes into Tudor's son, why he's there, and boy, oh boy, yeah, it it was very enjoyable, really mm. good film. I like. I it. just thought it was a little bit slow. Our friend Anita said suggested that had it been a play, or would wouldn't it make a great play? Because it's really a drama for four with four actors and pretty much in the one setting. Yeah, yep. which would make a great play, wouldn't it? It actually would. Although all those beautiful shots, the shots of the house and the garden and the sculpture and the art are pretty impressive as well. Yeah, no, no. Fascinating film. I can recommend it. So you have a recipe, Caro. I do, Corrie. Cobram Estate, Australia's most awarded extra virgin olive oil, grown, harvested and first cold-pressed in northern Victoria. And I wonder whether your recipe has olive oil in it this week, Caro. Of course it does. And the classic extra virgin olive oil by Cobram Estate was what I used to help make these wonderful lamb meatballs. Are you a robust or a classic girl? Well, it depends on what you're using. You were told to cook these meatballs in olive oil. And I think for, I don't think you need robust. I think robust I would more use for if you're using, making a dukkah and, you know, I'm dipping. Exactly right. Dipping or, your bread in it. Or if you're making a really good salad dressing or something like that. But for cooking, I use the classic. Um so I had this lamb mince in the freezer. It had been there for a week. And someone, I remember reading somewhere that you shouldn't keep mince in the freezer for more than a week. I know. I don't oh, know whether oh. that's true or not. Oh. I, I, Panda's in for a feast if that's the truth. I was making my bolognese <laughs> and I thought, well, I, I often use veal mince. Lamb will do. Then I thought, no, that'll be a bit strong. So I didn't use the lamb. I used pork and beef mince. So I had the lamb left over. Anyway, half a kilo of lamb mince made the most beautiful meatballs, which fed me and my very hungry husband and lunch the next day for two as well. Um, This is a beautiful recipe I found on the Tin Eats website. This is a great... What's Tin Eats? Tin Eats. We we used Tin Eats for Moussaka earlier this year. They're a really... It's like... It's another one like Taste, but Mm. it's Tin Eats, T-I-N-E-A-T-S. So... For the cooking, you need one and a half tablespoons of Cobram Estate olive oil. But to make the meatballs, there's not many ingredients, and I happen to have all of them in my cupboard or my fridge. The lamb mince, a small onion, which you grate. So if you grate the onion, you grate the onion, you don't need to cook it. It cooks. It's so fine. It cooks when you're cooking the meatballs. An egg, half a cup of panko breadcrumbs. I think they're better than regular breadcrumbs, two cloves of crushed garlic, a quarter of a cup of coriander, one and a half teaspoons each of cumin, coriander and paprika. I use smoked and that's what Tin Eats recommends. Half a teaspoon of cinnamon and cayenne pepper. I left out the cayenne pepper because I was feeding some to a little two-year-old and I thought I'd better leave that out. And um, a teaspoon of cooking salt and quarter teaspoon of black pepper. Now, you mix it all up, make little meatballs, fry them for eight minutes. They are beautiful. But the absolute trick to this, I didn't worry about the pocket pitter and all the salad stuff. I just made a chopped up tomato, cucumber and avocado sort of salad because that was what I had. But the minted yogurt sauce, Cory, you will just love this. Three quarters of a cup of plain yogurt, half a cup of tightly packed mint leaves. I used heaps two teaspoons of lemon juice and a quarter teaspoon of salt. Oh, that's kosher easy. Salt. But you, and you whiz it all. But you oh, only, really? So it goes it green. It goes green. Mm, but you I only like you only whiz, of the three quarters of a cup of yogurt, you only whiz a quarter of a cup and, and because yep. it goes a bit runny and otherwise yep. it's too runny and then you mix in the rest of the yogurt. Ah, okay. So there's heaps of yogurt Could left over. Could you please over. screenshot that part of it? I think that, that marinade, that little... Dressing could be quite handy over summer. Corrie, I will screenshot the entire recipe and send it to you and Courtney, Miss Courtney Jane, right now. And you will be absolutely loving this recipe. I think Courtney's already found it, but I'll send it to you anyway. Moroccan lamb meatballs 
They are absolutely delicious. And I'm loving the cinnamon and the paprika and all of that happening. Yeah, well, I'm realising now that I misread the recipe and I only put in half a teaspoon of all those things when it says one and a half. But oh, they were it. still beautiful. So you can do it. Yeah, you can absolutely do it. I mean, look, honestly, I'm not really someone who makes meatballs because I always think it's far too much work. But it's actually not well, that you much could do work those, at all. You could do those in a tiny version and have them as pass-arounds for pre-dinner yes. pre bar snacks. I love yeah. that idea too. Caro, that's a really good recipe. Caro's lamb meatballs. Well, and, well via, sorry, via, <laughs> who are we crediting? Tin Eats. Tin Eats. And honestly, it is a really, really good recipe. And it was easy. It was so easy. And I did make Brendan, who was watching a golf tournament at the time, grate the onion, which is probably, doesn't take that long though. You just use a box grater. Uh, you're talking to somebody with contact lenses who no longer has any issue. Great. I could grate. 15 onions, oh. and, I, and, 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 the, and I never tear up. That was uh, BSF, everybody, and we ended on a high note with Caro's lamb meatballs. Now, oh, you thought, are grumpy. I thought it was all on a, all on a pretty high note. Oh, Corey. no, it was. It was, uh, it was a good BSF. I'm grumpy about sports stars who decide they're going to become teachers, many of them off the back of tax grants and tax exemptions, setting up schools and academies and letting people down. Now, I know it isn't always their fault, but um, there was a couple of really highly publicised school and education programs all around the state that all fell apart once some funding scandals for educational institutions failed. I know that um, Simon Black, the former Brown, the He's always going to be a Brownlow medalist, Norm Smith medalist, three-time premiership player with the Brisbane Lions, had some real trouble here and was very, very upset when his business had to close. But the latest one is Alex Rance, the former Richmond premiership player, who basically... Also also of children's books too. Yeah, well, maybe he should stick to that, Corrie. Oh, Okay. Because in I September, can feel a brickbat coming along, in September he Jane. revealed that his um, schooling alternative, known as the Academy, sounds like a sort of a bit of a cult, doesn't it? It's not anything like that. Sorry, that's a stupid thing to say. That his academy was closing down. Um, he said it was. There were campuses in Essendon, Wangaratta, and Geelong, basically leaving a whole lot of Year Eleven students scrambling to find institutions for next year. Now, Alex Rance has said he's, he's very sorry about that, but um, it's not actually a school, and you know, th- these. Um, the um, units that the kids have already got as part of their year 11 curriculum will be able to be moved on to another educational institution. So what, so what are they learning? Not just sport, I gather. No, it's it's it, it's a sport-based program. But basically, um, he's, now, he's now gone to work for the Gold Coast Suns, Alex Rance, and he's working under Damien Hardwick. I think he's... Um, Basically, a, a leadership consultant. Yeah, leadership consultant. So he doesn't have time then to run his schools, but that's okay, isn't well, it? Well, no, he cited at the time back in September, he said there were teacher shortages and dwindling student numbers. And he blamed, um, and he said changes to the education system and, you know, that blah, blah, blah. He's now admitted, I need to work on my strengths and realise what my strengths are. And, um, The education system, this is what he said, the education system and the education space with all its compliance and red tape is experience I didn't have. Having a strong education partner or someone involved in the business that could manage that side was something we identified for a bit of time that we required. Now, he should have done his due diligence before he started up the school. It's really disappointing. And I think that... um, you know, Alex Rance was a, a beautiful footballer, a brilliant footballer. He was the reason he he retired early and controversially, but he just had enough of footy um, and he wanted to do he, – he's obviously always been very religious and a Jehovah's Witness and does a lot of great work, many people say. But this educa- this schooling system that he set up, the academy, just, you know, let a few people down, I reckon. And um, he's saying it's not a school, it's only a registered training org- organisation. They actually deliver the Certificate 3 in Sport and Rec. So I just, I've just i seen this happen again and again and again. Ex-sportsmen start up these institutions without any real knowledge of what is required. And I think it's really disappointing. So that's what makes me grumpy, Corrie. Mm, and now, that's a very good grumpy. Six mm, quick questions, shall we? For Red Energy, you're going to kick us off. Ask you what sudden death saddened you this week. I was shocked when I heard that Patrick Smith had died. Oh, were you? Um, he I, was thought, on... I thought of you when I heard. 
Well, he was only in his early 70s. He was way Former too young. Former age sports report, sports writer, everybody, and then he went to The Australian. Beautiful and, writer. And sports editor as yeah, well. Yeah, he was sports editor of The um, Age. Yeah. One of the brilliant sports columnists of our time internationally, and I think he's got a lot of international fans as well. Um, he took on authority. He really took on racism. Um, when um, He took on you at one stage, didn't he? Look, he and I did have a, a brief falling out when I became chief footy writer of the age. Looking back, I think we were both – he could be difficult to work with and maybe I could be too and maybe we were both finding our feet in this new relationship. But for a short time, as he said to me once, we really gave the sports section an edge mm. and I'm sorry that he left the age, but there were, there were reasons well beyond me. Do you think his initial response was – was sexist based? Do you think he had trouble no. with a woman? No, no, because he no. was he was a sports sub when I was appointed um, football writer, and he thought it was a total joke that a woman should be writing football. That was 1981, and I'm sure Patrick completely changed his mind on that. Yeah, look, he he could, he could be very encouraging. He could also be <laughs> make you feel pretty small as well. Yes. However, we resolved all our differences, and I and I do think that his. Fight his writing against racism in sport, and particularly in AFL football and VFL football, was um, ahead of its time. And people always associate me with the Essendon drug scandal for some reason as the journalist. But Patrick was every bit as strong in what he wrote. He was, you know, in what he wrote condemning what Essendon had done and the way James Heard handled it. And um, I often think that there was a bit of sexism in that, that it became because it was sort of a woman taking on James Heard. I don't know, but I always thought he deserved recognition as well. He he stepped away from full-time sports writing like I did and became a columnist. And I think he should have kept, I wish he'd kept going. He was just, he was just a brilliant journalist. And some of his, the nicknames he made up for people, famously nicknaming um, Grant Thomas Cornflakes, because his former president, Rod Butters, said, this bloke eats pressure for breakfast. So Patrick Smith <laughs> nicknamed him Cornflakes. I mean, there were so many. I think Mike Sheehan once said there was bloodshed every morning when you picked up Patrick's column. But he was just, I mean. He, he was fearless. He was absolutely fearless. And he wrote some brilliant stuff. Mm. And he, um, and if he didn't like you and you were part of the AFL system, Heaven forbid. Anyway, look, he, he had a massive heart attack on the weekend. He will be greatly missed by his wife, Sue, and his son, Damien, and Damien's family. Um, he became very, very close to it – was, he was a champion when Steve Linnell, another former sports editor, had some difficulties when he went to work for the Victoria Police. Patrick Smith stuck by Steve Linnell like nothing I have ever seen. So he was fiercely loyal too. Anyway, Vale, Patrick Smith. Mm. Corrie. Yeah, yeah. What decision by the Chinese government saddened you this week? The decision to recall the three giant pandas from the National Zoo in Washington, D.C. So this is not really affecting yours or my li daily life, Carol, I know. But no. I, this came to my attention because I was listening to one of my favourite podcasts, which is the Washington Post. Uh, it's, it's a sort of a political roundup each week. I love it. It wasn't the word panda that caught your eye, was it? <laughs> oh, ha-ha. <laughs> um, but... Um, the, the the journalists were all saying how they felt so sad coming to work that day because two of them, I think, drive past the National Zoo and they felt very sad that the pandas were no longer there. So I thought, what on earth is happening with the pandas? Last Wednesday, Mei Jiang, who is 25, Chan Chan, who is 26, and little Zhao Qi Ji, who is their cub, who was born in 2020, they were loaded onto a special Panda Express cargo plane and flown back to China to Zhengdu. The giant pandas have been a major attraction. And of course, the panda politics has been going since 1972 when American President, then American President Richard Nixon visited China and the pandas were given as a gift to the American people. But always on loan, Caro. The pandas have always had the stipulation in the contract that they must return at some point. However, these these pandas have been there for, I think it's 20 or 23 years, um, and I would suggest it was soft fur diplomacy at its best. <laughs> but this is really sad. Of course, then I completely went in a, in a deep a deep tunnel on the World Wide Web and... Um, 
listen to an interview with longtime panda keeper at the zoo, Nicole McCorkle, who said that it was she knew this day would come. It takes us a while, but laugh will go on at the zoo, but it's a void for all of us. And I think all of Washington is going to feel the same. I felt very sad. Yeah, no, I... I... But this is what happens. East-West tension, take the pandas out of the US. That's a pretty extraordinary decision. Bring them home. Bring home the furry boys. Okay, where do you stand on Prince Harry's latest transgression? Well, as we know, Prince Harry and Meghan are big environmentalists and he is an ambassador for several big environmental, including saving energy. Oh, there's a couple of boards that he's on. I just thought it wasn't a great idea to catch a Gulfstream jet to a Katy Perry concert in Las Vegas with Cameron Diaz and a group of others. Um, but he, it wasn't his jet. He didn't pay for it. No, but I, I noticed that he's not being used as much on certain websites anymore to promote said environmentally conscious um, energy saving. <laughs> I mean, I don't know, 43000 a head just seems a bit of a... So if you were Megan and Harry's media advisor, what would you have said? Just drive. <laughs> Get the train. I don't know. I mean, he just, I know that every time Megan, you pick get the train. You can't open up, and I'm, I don't use it as clickbait, but you can't open a website now without seeing something new and dreadful that Harry's done. And there have been so many. There was a couple of silly things like that alleged car chase around New York that wasn't really a car chase. That was bad. Some of them are completely He hasn't beat been ups. invited to his father's 75th birthday in London. It's today, I think. I think we're speaking to you on the King's birthday. Oh. Yeah, I know. Sorry. I'm just. Thought I'd just mention that. Um, oh, yeah. you royal watcher, you. No, but um, I just didn't think that was a great move. And there's just uh, sometimes, you know, he, I don't think he's a bad person, but not the most intelligent of lads. Anyway, silly Harry. Um, Corey, is Donald Trump too old to stand again? Well, don't even get me started on whether Donald Trump should stand again. But if the question is too old, an alarming number of gaps have come out of the former president's mouth in recent weeks. Really alarming. Now, you could say that he's he's slightly preoccupied by the number of court cases that are currently in front of him on his desk, uh, not to mention his, his campaign to be re-elected. But um, the confusion has rain, ranged from, he has said this on a couple of occasions, that he, he defeated Barack Obama in 2016. That's not right. Um, he... he he has confused the name of the city and the state he has been in at the time that he has been delivering some particular address. And he also the other day bizarrely claimed that um, Joe Biden would get the United States into World War II. Now, apparently he meant World War Three, of course, but um, <laughs> it's kind of a big mistake. And then even more bizarre, and I did watch this on YouTube, and I thought like just, it kind of went on and on before somebody tapped him on the shoulder and whispered in his ear. He was giving a speech in New Hampshire and there was a gentleman beside him and he introduced to everybody, this is Victor Orban, my very, very good friend, the leader of Turkey. The Turkish people love him. This is Victor. He's a great man. He's from Turkey. Well, in fact, Victor Orban is the Prime Minister of Hungary. Mm. So a lot of these slip-ups are causing some uh, Trump um, people to raise red flags. And in fact, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who's also in the presidential race, said this is a different Donald Trump than 2015 and 2016. We are seeing a different guy and it's sad to see. So that's interesting, Caro. Will they make a, make an issue of this? Um, speaking of age, is Joe Biden too old to stand again? Yes, he is. I'm yes. sorry. Look, agree, he, agree. 80 is too old. And he'll well, be, he's 80 now. I mean. 80 for some people might not be old. No. Thinking but, of my dear friend, Barry Jones, who could probably still run the country really well. And he turned 91 the other day. Yeah. Look, I, this is not being ageist, but you look at Joe Biden and some of his speeches and it's pretty obvious that he's starting to age. And he seemed old when he became president, but he was, you know, he was there to um, deliver a result and he did. Um he got Donald Trump out of the White House, which was um, a great feat. But honestly and truly, 
is there what is wrong with American politics that we're looking at Trump as being the leading Republican candidate and Biden being mm. the, the being the leading Democrat? I mean, he's too sorry. He seems too old. He makes mistakes as well, and it's starting to. I, I know that being president is a lot about presentation, and other people are really running the country. But no. Well, Donald Trump is seventy-seven, and you're right. At the at the twenty twenty presidential election, they were two of the oldest candidates America's ever had. Did you did you know I discovered the other day that if you're under if you're under the age of thirty five, you are not allowed to become president of the United States. Didn't know that. Oh, that's not my amazing fact, by the way, but that's just another little fact. But speaking of, of, you're about to deliver an amazing fact. You're gonna love this. You might know it. Last week was the four hundredth anniversary of Shakespeare's first folio. Do you know what that is? I do. Look, I I think I read something about this. You might have on my Instagram account. Yeah. <laughs> That's where I saw it. I knew I follow you. I follow you diligently, Corrie. You read the copy too because it was a bit of a long um, entry, this particular one. I was so excited I couldn't stop writing. And in fact, I wrote so much. Instagram says to you, you've gone over the limit with your caption. You've, read, you've written too many words. I had to pull it back a bit. Seven years after his death... The work of William Shakespeare was um, brought to us under the first folio and it was called Mr. William Shakespeare's Comedies, Histories and Tragedies. This, Caro, is one of the great wonders of the literary world. And it was first it's the first printed edition of Shakespeare's collected plays. And without this document and without the extraordinarily ambitious Friends of William Shakespeare who thought, yes, we can actually do this with a printing press, we can do this, um, we would have lost more than half of his dramatic work. We would not have in our midst some of those truly great plays. So thank you to the Shakespeare's acting colleagues and the business sense of the investors who got behind it and the talents of all of those editors, compositors, designers, even the papermakers, we'll thank them as well. So what's in the first folio? The first folio includes Tempest, Twelfth Night, Measure for Measure, um, gentlemen, Two Gentlemen of Verona, Much Ado About Nothing, Richard III, Romeo and Juliet, Julius Caesar, Macbeth, Hamlet, all the great hits, all the smash hits are in it. There were 750 copies printed, 235 are known to remain, most of which are kept in either public archives or private collections. More than one-third of the copies are housed in the Folger Shakespeare Library in Washington, D.C., home of 82 of the first folios. I just want to do a little shout out, not that they'll be oh. listening, to Edward Blunt, first of all. He was he died in 1632 and he was one of the two principal publishers behind the first folio. I'm sure he'd appreciate it if he knew, but... Um, he <laughs> o- he operated uh, a shop in the station stationer's community, the paper community in St Paul's Churchyard and he was a very shrewd businessman. And he backed the publication of significant authors like Ben Johnson and Christopher Marlowe at the time. And he truly believed and and we believe that he was the main investor in the first folio. The second shout out goes to John Hemming, who died in 1630. And he was one of the two principal editors of the first folio. He was an actor and he truly believed that this work needed to be collected and remain forevermore. And he showed great business acumen putting this project together. In the pages before the plays, there are five poems, Caro, written in praise of Shakespeare and his remarkable contribution to the theatre by his contemporaries. And I'll just leave you with this little one from Leonard Diggs. This book, when brass and marble fade, shall make thee look fresh to all ages. How lovely. Isn't that great? Yeah, no, it was was a lovely story and um, fascinating to read. And what, gee... A lot of actors and a lot of directors and a lot of publishers and a lot of school curriculums. I mean, imagine, imagine. Imagine life without Shakespeare. But can you still get your head around the fact that he wrote so much work in such a short life? Do you think he wrote it all? Oh, Caro, that's a discussion for another day. 
to, to I think we need another hour. Corrie, it's been great to see you again. I want to thank everybody for joining us today. I want to mention our friend Claire at LO Botanicals, maker of the most beautiful face and other part of the body, as we've found out, thanks to Anna from the Op Shop Oils. And even though we're not doing our live event this week, we will be doing one early in the new year and there are going to be some wonderful LO Botanical prizes for the first to book for that event. Corrie, it's been great to see you. I feel smarter for what we've discussed over the last hour, (laughs) particularly about Shakespeare. And what do we say? Don't shoot the messenger. Thanks for listening to this episode of Don't Shoot the Messenger with Caroline Wilson and Corey Perkin. We love hearing from you, so join us on Facebook or Instagram at Don't Shoot Pod or email us via feedback at don'tshootpod.com.au. And if you'd like to support the show, the best way to do it is to tell a friend to listen. Your word of mouth recommendations are just so greatly appreciated. And of course, you can support our wonderful sponsors who make the podcast possible. Red Energy, awarded CanStar's most trusted energy providers three times. Maybe it's time you switch to red. Cobram Estate, Australia's most awarded extra virgin olive oil, grown, harvested and first cold pressed in northern Victoria and Prince Wine Store, Bank Street, South Melbourne and delivering Australia-wide. Visit princewinestore.com.au.